This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast from May 18th, 2020. We've heard lots of all sorts of people in all kinds of positions in this podcast over the past few years, but I have a real coup for you this time, an economist who served at the top levels of his government and the World Bank. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes, these gigantic share valuations that you got on Wall Street were fueled by the cash that the banks and large institutions had from quantitative easing, from the government basically just printing cash. And that wasn't flowing down, and that we were due a correction in any case. I fully agree with you. Uh, the, Damn it. The, uh, <laughs> I the, thought we'd get yeah. an argument. <laughs> uh, let me just do, to to make a, a, a small remark. Uh, there has been clearly a structural problem with uh, the U.S. economy. That's coming up shortly, but first I want to say thank you to all of my donors on Patreon. I appreciate them all. Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a book or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. About two years ago on the podcast, I had an interview with Natalie Wynne, then called Natalie Parrott, and also known as the YouTuber ContraPoints. Despite the fact that I'm a huge fan of her YouTube channel, it was a pretty tense interview. If you don't know the ContraPoints channel on YouTube, you should look it up now. She puts a huge investment into the writing and shooting of the videos, not least to the hugely in-depth analysis of the topics covered. Because I'm a big fan of her videos, particularly the rigorous intellectual questioning in them, I was a bit disappointed that the interview was, as I say, tense, and that Natalie came across as defensive. That was my perception, and quite a few listeners commented in the same vein. Natalie is a trans woman, a lot of her videos are centred on that topic, and I thought that it would be interesting to talk to her about the issues that surround that, and of course that would mean putting to her the views of people who disagree with her. If you listen to that interview, I think you will hear that she didn't see it that way. One of the topics that we disagreed over was the way in which some trans people and their supporters can be perceived to be intolerant of any expression of views that they don't agree with. They are certainly not alone in that, I'm not suggesting that's true of all trans people, but there seems to be little point in denying that the effect exists. To illustrate the point, I played a clip of a woman who describes herself as a sex educator, Lacey Green, if you know anything at all about her, you'll know that she is a strong supporter of the LGBT community in general and trans people in particular. But despite this, she was the subject of an online and occasionally terrifyingly offline hate campaign. 
This is how Lacey Green herself spoke about the incident. And video to him, and at the time, Chris had called himself the T-word. That's how he referred to himself. Wait, the T-word? So he called himself trans? Did I just miss something? People Did are going to yell at me if I say it. Oh, God, it. something just really went over my head there. The... Tranny. Uh, oh. Tranny? Do you... yeah. yeah. Well, you're just quoting something that someone said. I know, but people get really mad, but dude. But whisper it a little louder. They're going to try to slit my throat. You called Chris tranny because that's the word he was using about himself. I said he's my favorite. He's, okay, so you said that Chris was your favorite tranny, a word that he was using. I know, but look, I have been violently threatened. God, it's not like we're putting this out. <laughs> you have to understand, like, I have been violently threatened yeah. many times over this, so. I wanted to get Natalie's opinion of people who identify themselves as trans and their supporters making death threats to a young woman who hadn't meant to harm anyone. So I played her that clip that you just heard there, and I asked her what she thought. This is what she said. It's a slur. I wouldn't use the N-word online. And I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that she gets death threats, but I get death threats. We all get death threats. No, no but hold on for a second. She was specifically quoting she something. She didn't want to say a slur. Yeah. She she was no she was specifically quoting somebody she had I think when she, the issue was when she was seventeen quoted somebody the the term that somebody had used on themselves. Yeah, she was quoting it, but you know it's the internet. People get angry about things a lot. You know what do you want me to do about it? So not so much sympathy there. Natalie doesn't want people to use the word tranny even in the most friendly context because she thinks it's a slur. To be fair, it certainly has been used as a slur many times, but I think that context matters. And even if it doesn't, there isn't any world where making death threats against a young woman who didn't mean any harm to anyone is okay. And if anyone that could be, even in the vaguest way associated with me, did that, I would want to be first out of the traps in disassociating myself from that. But Natalie didn't. She clearly saw the word as so egregious that, regardless of the context, using it drew more condemnation from her than making death threats. So, anyway, two years later, I was watching her latest ContraPoints video. I can't begin to summarize it here. It's more than an hour and 20 minutes of dense argument, but I highly recommend it. The only thing that I can say is that it deals with a lot of how we perceive in-group and out-group behavior. I was watching the video and I heard this. Not the Princeton Alumni Yacht Society. God, how did trannies get so snobbish? Look, is Chris... Ah, so the word tranny in context doesn't seem to be so offensive to Natalie anymore, at least not offensive enough to justify death threats. So... Is this some big gotcha to prove how Natalie is a hypocrite or that everything she says can now be safely discarded? No. As I say, I'm a big fan of her YouTube channel. I'd highly recommend it. And I think if you can avoid causing offence and still be true to yourself, then I would avoid that. But I would also try to give people a break, assume the best intentions in others, and if everybody could, in general, cool it a bit in terms of taking offence, that would be nice. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Ottaviano Canuto. Ottaviano was a vice president of the World Bank, 
He previously served as Executive Director at the Board of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. He's also held other roles at the World Bank, as well as the position of Secretary of State for International Affairs at the Ministry for Finance in Brazil, his native country. He's now the Senior Fellow at the Policy Centre for the New South, and he's a frequent commenter on international financial affairs. Ottaviano, we are in a very extraordinary period some time back, one of your colleagues from the IMF said, uh, Kristalina Georgiviana, said that we anticipate the worst economic fallout since the Great Depression. Do you think she's right? Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think Kristalina is right because we are undergoing a temporary but very, very severe crisis. And uh, the downfall of GDP, employment, and, and other aspects of economic life uh, tell us that we're going to be through really a deep process of uh, GDP shrinking and, and pain. Mm -hmm. Now, th the point is that this crisis differs from previous ones because it combines a uh, very severe supply shocks that is to say, for public health uh, necessity, uh, people are confined. We have the social distancing policies that affect the possibility of producing uh, things in several parts of the economy, particularly in service. Anything that needs physical agglomeration of people have been hurt, but also a demand shock, because even if, for instance, uh, the governors decided to suspend the uh, the social distancing policies at play. Do you think people would gather, would go to restaurants, or would uh, do traveling again? Not for a time, not before we have, let's say, we all feel at ease with respect to the coronavirus spread. So it is deep. It is really, really a, a crisis that will dent on the GDP uh, not only the US, but also of the global economy. And then I've heard something said, and maybe I'll give you the buzzwords that I've heard and read, and you can tell me if I'm understanding them correctly. The first one is a V-shaped recession or a U-shaped recession. That basically means, do we recover quickly or slowly? Which do you think? Well, look, yes, uh, that's a good characterization of the hypothesis uh, prevailing in the beginning of this crisis and, and, and now. Uh, in the very beginning, when, when many people thought, expected the coronavirus stuff to be circumscribed to China and some other Asian countries, there was the, the hope that it could be a V-shaped process. Namely, uh, uh, China suffers a, 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 you know, a, a shock uh, that has spillovers all, uh, on the world and so on. But then uh, after two months of, uh, of, uh, of uh, sudden stop, it could recover. That was the hypothesis in the beginning. But once the, the, uh, the coronavirus landed clearly in Italy and it became clear to all of us that the spread of the coronavirus would become a global phenomenon, then things changed dramatically. That's when we had the shock on finance, 
on financial markets in the U.S., the rest of the world. And we all realized that this would be a longer process. So it's more to a U-shaped and hopefully provided that the policies implemented by countries, uh, let's say, minimize the damage on the social tissue and on the on the the tissue of uh, companies in 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 the uh, in the economy, mm-hmm. we might have a J like. It could be a little bit worse, uh, but definitely the V shaped recovery uh, process is now out of the cards. Okay, then I want to just maybe bundle two questions to you. The first one is just a yes or no question. It seems like from what your colleague in the IMF is saying is that if it's going to be as bad as the Great Depression, then that clearly means it's worse than the the credit crunch 10 years ago. That's a yes or no. And secondly, what, in your view, are the correct policies for governments, particularly in the West, to pursue in order to minimize the damage? Perfect. Uh, To the first question, yes. To the second, uh, uh, I guess what everyone has insisted on and and most governments have been pursuing is to implement policies that minimize the permanent damage of the temporary crisis on people and on firms. Let me explain a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the sudden stop. And the, the, uh, you know, the following unemployment that has taken place, they are not due to things that were necessarily wrong with the functioning of the economic system. They are simply, uh, an outcome of the spread of the coronavirus and the public health response that followed. Now, one aims at, uh, let's say, a passing by a crisis. Without letting the shock to become something more permanent, more durable, as it was the case in the 30s with the Great Depression. The Great Depression happened particularly because after the the downfall of the stock markets in in 1929, there were not policies uh, in the the following that uh, impeded, for instance, the bankruptcy of uh, healthy solvent firms. There was no policy to protect those who were immediately unemployed and didn't have any, any way to, to, to survive the process. And then the financial crisis then became the Great Depression that we all know from history. So then, so then I want to, I want to give you one phrase that I've heard and you can explain what it means and whether you think it's a good idea. Helicopter money. What is helicopter money? Yes, helicopter money is simply, uh, you know, uh, money that is distributed directly to the population on a temporary basis. This is not something to stay forever, but uh, to help uh, those vulnerable people in society to to live through, to to overcome the painful process during which the economy is submitted to a sudden stop. The problem is that uh, regardless of the skills of people, regardless of uh, the good things that people were doing, the unemployed and so on, before the shock, they now have no other solution uh, because the the, the economy is frozen. So you provide them uh, money falling from heaven uh, so that they can survive this process. The, the, The countries have taken different approach to this. For instance, in the case of Brazil, 
money has been provided, has started to be provided today, as of today, in fact, to the very poor people who received in the past conditional cash transfers, and it's been widened to a broader range of people. Uh, the solution here in the U.S. has been, the, the, let's say, the most uh, balanced in the sense that the money has been given to uh, the substantial chunk of the population. Uh, in order to help them to survive, people need to uh, buy food. People need to buy, uh, to, to purchase essential uh, goods and, and, and service. And the only way to do it is by having this money falling from heaven. So, so why uh, then, why then, why then in the uh, aftermath of the financial shock and pretty much all the way for the past 10 years, have we had quantitative easing, which is essentially printing billions of dollars and euros and pounds and more or less giving it to financial institutions. Was it wrong then to give it to financial institutions or is it wrong now to give it to individuals? That's a very good question. The nature of the two crises is completely different uh, in the sense that the, the global financial crisis started uh, in the U.S. financial system and, and later on, uh, also followed by the European uh, banking system, was a financial crisis. It was due to to overvalued assets in balance sheets of, uh, of financial institutions, particularly banks and, and so on, associated with the housing boom that we watched in the previous years. So at that time, the most important thing to do was to on the one side, force the banks to force those balance sheets to be adjusted, to recognize losses and so on. And this was done while at the same time avoiding a liquidity crisis that would make solvent but illiquid firms to go bankrupt. Which Just to is be clear what for, the, for the listeners, when you say solvent but illiquid, that's to say a firm that is trading profitably, but doesn't have enough cash on hand to stay in business and keep their operations going. Well said, well said. Uh, a firm that is otherwise solid and that becomes, that seems to be solid uh, by circumstance because simply the drought of money in the market. And, and so even though it's possible to argue that part of the package, the relief uh, that was provided by the, the, the government in, in back in 2009 could have been given a bit to poor families uh, that had to face the, uh, the, the price adjustment of houses and mortgages and so on. It's true. It's fair. It could have been done partially to this. But the, 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 uh, the need to have the Federal Reserve Bank injecting liquidity in the markets in order to avoid the bankruptcy of solid firms was was uh, a, the, the, an important component then. Okay, let, in, me, let it, me challenge you. Let me challenge you then on one thing. And I'm conscious that I'm challenging somebody who's been at a high level in the IMF and the World Bank. And little old me is saying, maybe you're not correct. But you said that the 2008-2009 crisis was essentially a financial crisis. And now we have a supply and demand crash because people are being forced to stay at home. They can't go out to work in many cases. And when they can, they may not be, they may be uh, unwilling to spend their money and uh, keep the economy going like that. But we have had a recovery since 2008-9. But that's been a very modest recovery for some people. And for some people, it's been an almost unnoticeable recovery. 
And unemployment has been low in most Western countries, but the quality of that employment has also been very low. And it's noted that, for example, in the United States, an enormous percentage, I think something like 40% of the population, could not cope with an unexpected expense of $400. Isn't it true that these gigantic share valuations that you got on Wall Street were fueled by the cash that uh, banks and large institutions had from quantitative easing, from the government basically just printing cash. And that wasn't flowing down, and that we were due a correction in any case. I fully agree with you. Uh, the, Damn it. The, uh, <laughs> I uh, thought we'd get yeah. an argument. <laughs> uh, let me just do, to, to make a, a, a small remark. Uh, there has been clearly a structural problem with uh, the U.S. economy, as well as it is the case in all other advanced economies in the world, which is uh, we never got back to the high performance in terms of growth, particularly for the low strata of the population. Uh, the, the, as we can see in the figures regarding income distribution, the prosperity has been mostly uh, accrued by the uh, the upper part of the income pyramid. Uh, you were right in that regard. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, we haven't had a recession uh, for the last 10 years in the U.S. economy up to now. Uh, so that has been the longest period of stability. But the average growth rate has not been, uh, let's say, as great as in previous decades. There is a structural problem in the sense that despite the huge amount of uh, liquidity injection by the Fed, uh, feeding up uh, a new bubble, as you, as you correctly uh, pinpointed, mm -hmm. uh, we haven't had a performance of GDP, of growth of the economy in these countries, particularly for those on the uh, side below, below side of, of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. But the point is, uh, what uh, would the alternative have been better, let is to say, to, to not have even this uh, exuberant uh, behavior of asset markets? I don't think it would have been would have been great. Uh, my point is that the, let, the let, issue me, let me put my theory. Uh, let me place my theory at your feet. Perhaps ten years ago, what we should have done, rather than giving huge amounts of cash to the institutions, was perhaps give that cash to individuals and in order to manage the illiquidity and sometimes uh, insolvency of the banks say that whoever's getting that cash if you're in debt you must use that cash to pay off debt if you're not in debt you can keep it would that not have been a better way rather than having essentially what's happening now that you have enormously profitable companies the apples and the googles and so forth piling up gigantic stores of cash in places like the Cayman Islands, wouldn't it have been better to give that directly to the people and let them spend it and sure, let the companies make profits, but from it going through individuals' hands first? Maybe not uh, hand over, handing over cash uh, simply to, to families, but rather to use the public uh, resource to retrain labor to prepare uh, the workers to new functions and so on. And that can explain the things that we were referring to as structural problems in the U.S. economy along the last 10 years. They were here before. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. There has been an underinvestment in in this society with respect to the preparedness of uh, large swaths of its population to the new the new world. See, the uh, the levels of unemployment and and economic harsh suffered suffered by parts of this country. They they have less to do with the invasion of goods from China or Mexico. And they have more to do with the lack of preparedness of the population to technological changes. The changes in manufacturing, uh, they have taken place because of technological change that have, let's say, undermined the, uh, the, 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 the ability to integrate from those people with uh, inadequate technical and, and, and educational So, so crudely put, if you're at the bottom of the education heap, it's easier for a computer or a machine to replace you. Therefore, you are competing with your wages. Your wages are competing with that of a machine. It has been like this. And, and to the point that the, the promise made by President Trump to get manufacturing back to the U.S., uh, or the, the employment, he, he may manage to get back part of the manufacturing processes. But to get the, to return, to rewind the clock and go back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, it, it's a myth. This is, this is, uh, this is not possible because the, 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 the demand for labor has changed dramatically in profile, in intensity and so on. So the best thing to do is to prepare the population to do other things, to, to improve their skills, to go up the ladder with respect to occupation. There's no way for West Virginia or for the interior of Wisconsin to go back to the past uh, without having the preparedness of the population, rescaling, and so on. This issue has been with us for the last uh, 20, 25 years. So it's, it's, President Trump is wrong when he says it's Chinese taking your jobs. It's not. It's robots taking your yes, jobs. Yes, 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 yes. This is a, a very populistic... Of course, it's easier to put the blame on foreigners, on, on, on people from outside. Uh, I'm not denying that this has been a challenge uh, all over the world. So the, the, the fall of poverty levels in a substantial part of the world that has been made possible by globalization, by global value chains and so on, has created this challenge. I, I'm not denying this. But uh, uh, thinking that you can retreat and, and bring back the production processes to this country without having the, uh, as I said, the due investments in infrastructure, in, in, in preparation, in the re-education. Pause with that idea then. Pause with that idea, with the idea of the investments in infrastructure and education and so forth. And in the two most prominent Western democratic capitalist countries, the UK and the US, over the past few months, both of those countries were offered red-blooded socialist alternatives in elections, Bernie Sanders in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. And both of them were roundly defeated. And within a very short period after their defeat, we've had uh, right-wing governments in both of those jurisdictions adopting policies that don't look all that different to what they're doing in response to the COVID-19 crisis, they are essentially saying, have the state take over the large parts of the healthcare system, have the state pay large subsidies to people who can't get jobs and so forth. 
uh, Jeremy Corbyn was famous for saying after he lost the election that, and he was derided for saying that he won the argument. Is that possibly true? Well, look, there are many shades of grey in between what you are characterizing as socialists and, let's say, and 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 damned conservatives. And let me explain. Some of the proposals uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, both Carving and, and, and Bernie Sanders here in the U.S., yes, they, they were very much radical. Uh, while at the same time, uh, well, there are many possible intermediate level types of policies that don't have to go to the extreme uh, that you are referring to. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, uh, promoting public programs of uh, reschooling and so on, is this socialist? Uh, making sure that you have universal coverage of the population by some medical insurance plan, is that socialism? Well, look, uh, each and every advanced economy, except for the U.S., the U.S. is the only rich country in the world that doesn't have a universal medical coverage. Uh, Obama went only halfway with uh, his program, but he has not faced the issue of, of the, the, the high costs of the U.S. Uh, health, health system. Now, doing things in that regard, uh, adapting uh, to other existing, can one say that Sweden is socialist? The Swedes can do. One say, well, no, they don't call it socialism. Anyway, socialism is something very much radical. Well, Bernie Sanders' proposal was socialist. The idea of uh, of uh, making it free for everyone without without uh, differentiating the case when uh, people can pay for it. That was too extreme. Yeah, but that's not the proposal. For but instance, but that's, that, that, is, that, is, that is what that's Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab are promising for the National Health Service in the UK. Yeah, see, the, the Canadian system works well. The, the French system works well. The German system works well. The Germans are being able to cope better with, uh, with respect to Corona, with the uh, COVID-19, because they have substantial uh, capacity to provide uh, critical health services and so on, even better than their neighbors and so on. So the point is that there are many shades of gray. Uh, and the, the, the way the, it operates, the healthcare system operates in the U.S., still leaves aside a substantial part of the population. And, uh, and whereas it's possible to, you know, you may live with a dual system, one that is, let's say, broader, universal, based, providing basic service, uh, as it is the case in the countries that I mentioned, including the U.K., uh, and uh, uh, leaving some space for private uh, insurance systems, which can, let's say, cover uh, other more expensive uh, stuff and needs without having a fragile base as the one that we have. Look, it's well known uh, among the the healthcare specialists in the world how the U.S. system is weak when it comes to the attendance at the retail level in the interior of the country, how uh, vulnerable the country is to things like the the opioid crisis that we mm-hmm. have seen uh, or, or, along the country because of a lack 
of, uh, let's say, capillarity in the healthcare system. So uh, the the neglect, uh, let's say, over conservative stance is is uh, intrinsically very much painful for those who are at the bottom of the pyramid. Okay, then I ask you. Let, let me then move on to just one last question. Let's say that you had the ear, that you had the attention of a world leader with a very short attention span, and you had to say to them the number one policy that they should adopt coming out of this crisis in order to recover as quickly as possible, what would you say? I would say the following. Make sure that the some sort of uh, cooperation among countries uh, is to remain, it is to be, let's say, enhanced. And let me explain briefly. What we were watching today, uh, this pandemic, is only one of the challenges faced by mankind at this juncture in history that can only be faced on a global manner. Uh, it's not only finance, but it's but uh, one must include terrorism, one must include cybersecurity, and pandemics was already pinpointed uh, some years ago as one of those new potential uh, problems faced by the, the global society that can only be faced by some sort. His his of, eyes uh, are glazing over. You have to tell him what to do exactly. What should he do? Uh, you she? make sure. For, yeah. Well, make sure that, for instance, uh, we don't start with uh, purely nationalistic policies. I am am uh, am deeply concerned with the way by which countries are uh, almost undergoing a war. For for equipments of uh, the ventilators mm-hmm. to to attend, this may uh, lead to I, I see the crumbling down of cooperation among eurozone countries that concerns me a lot. Uh, I see this idea of uh, putting the blame, uh, and I, I criticize President Trump for calling the virus Chinese. Uh, whereas someone might, let's say, call the Spanish flu as something that originated in Kansas. I'm concerned with the propaganda war that China uh, itself has started by by highlighting uh, the way by which they responded to the crisis, even though they denied it at the beginning. So I'm concerned with this rising sentiment of uh, countries in isolation against global cooperation, because so look, look at the COVID-19. Either this thing is dealt with appropriately in the developing world, in the emerging markets, in Africa, in India, and so on. Either this happens there as well, or it will come back. So, uh, you know, there is no isolated cure to a problem such as this, the pandemic. And that applies to other issues faced by mankind. And the same applies to uh, migration to this uh, to climate change, obviously, and uh, climate change has no solution taken on an individual basis. It has to be a global, uh, uh, coordinated response with all the difficulties that that entails. So uh, the the awareness that the the COVID nineteen is bringing to us all is the need to be more cooperative on a global scale. That there's no such a thing as taking refugee on individual country, even in the case of such a large, rich, and, and, and relevant country like the U.S. 
Ottaviano Canuto, former vice president of the World Bank and holder of many international financial roles. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me here. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Ottaviano Canuto at OCanuto. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find that link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's May 25th, I'll be talking to the writer and journalist Marsha Brown about what's happening on the United States' southern border. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>